This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I am excited and pleased to be joined in this episode by Professor Michael Munger. Professor Munger is Professor of Political Science and Director of the PPE program at Duke University, and the author of the recent book, Is Capitalism Sustainable? Mike, thanks for coming on the show. It is a great pleasure. Thank you, Jimmy. So looking over your academic resume, I noticed that you are trained as an economist, but you work in a political science department. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came to pass? Well, I never got a job as an economist. I'm apparently not a very good economist, but since I am by ideology a free market person, I believed that the academic market spoke the truth when it told me I sucked. And so I switched to political science and it has worked out very well. If you told me in graduate school, I flunked out of graduate school. I had to reapply, uh, managed to get back in, scraped through, but didn't get a job for three years. If you had told me I'd be a full professor at Duke, I would have taken that. That would have been fine. It worked out pretty well. I know you've talked about this a lot on various podcasts and shows, but it, this topic seems very pertinent these days. Um, I wanted to switch to, to talking about pr uh, price gouging. Um, the reason for that is, you know, with the pandemic and shortages and various things, I think a lot of people think that uh, price gouging is wrong and it should be, you know, illegal or banned across the board. Um, are there any good reasons to allow price gouging, at least in some cases? There's two separate questions about whether it's right or wrong and whether it should be illegal. Let's look at the question of whether it is illegal. Uh, forgive me, whether it's immoral. Because if it's not immoral, then we probably don't need to worry so much about the illegal. So let's take them in, in sequence. Um, price is a signal of scarcity. It's not a cause of scarcity. So the problem in a disaster is scarcity. So if you have, if you think that price should not rise in response to scarcity, and I, this is a consequentialist argument, I, I admit, but it, it is like the, gosh, I can't think of the name of the philosopher that, that wrote about, we came up with the idea, and I, I've gotten it from Matt Zwolinski, came up with the idea of non-worseness. And non-worseness is uh, an infelicitous sort of name, but the claim is that a moral concern that you have for another cannot lead you to make that person worse off. So that is, if I'm worried that someone is in trouble, then I cannot uh, make that person worse off out of my own sense of moral intuition. So um, if I suppose I want to buy something and you have it, and you like it enough that you're unwilling to sell it at the market price, but I really need it. I want it a lot more than you do. Saying that price gouging is immoral would mean that that person is somehow damaging me if they are unwilling to sell at a price that I'm willing to pay for it. So here's the thing. If there's scarcity, three things happen. Price goes up, and the result is that consumers have a moral concern they didn't have before. 
And that is, I should leave something for the person behind me. One of the things about markets, because if, if we're around a table and we say, all right, who wants the last biscuit? And I've had seven and you've had none, we can probably work that out. But market systems are much larger and more impersonal than that. So I don't automatically take into account the needs of other people. High prices help me do that. High prices remind me that someone else needs this. So uh, I actually got in trouble. I didn't get in trouble. I was widely criticized. I was on a NPR radio show called Planet Money after Hurricane Sandy in New York City. And after Hurricane Sandy, there were a lot of gas stations in New Jersey that had gas, but they couldn't open because they didn't have electricity. And anti-price gouging laws means, meant they couldn't raise their price. So I'm trying to get away from the devastated coastline and I go five miles inland and I'm almost out of gas. I really, really need gas. So I go to this gas station owner and I say, look, I'll pay you $25 for a gallon of gas. And the gas station owner says, no, I, that's immoral. I wouldn't want to exploit you. Uh, no, seriously, I, I really need gas. It would help me to pay. It's worth $100 to me. I will pay you $25. And the person says, no, Wertheimer. Wertheimer is the name of the philosopher that wrote the book about non-worseness. So the, my concern for you cannot make you worse off. My concern that I shouldn't exploit you shouldn't impose a hardship on you. So if I say, no, seriously, sell me this, this gas at $25 a gallon. Well, because if they could sell it at a higher price, they could have rented a um, generator and they could have used that because they have gas. <laughs> they have enough gas to run the generator. So th that means that they would have enough electricity. And if they were selling gas at $25 a gallon, I pull up there and I think, oh, I'm going I'm to fill up my tank. I really need gas. And then I see it. Wow, $25 a gallon. Well, I can get by with just two gallons. I will economize. I will take into account that there's someone behind me that needs gas. So the first reason why allowing prices to change is not only not immoral, but actively moral, is that it gives you a reason and information. Those are both important. It gives you a reason and information to take into account the needs of other people, which seems like an important moral consideration. Instead of just saying, I'm going to take all of this for myself, I have the information that I need, and I have an incentive to act on that information to say, leave some for the person behind you. The second thing that, is, that happens in response to changes in price is producers find ways to make more. And if producers find ways to make more, that means that they're trying to ship gas in from other states. But if you have a law that says you can only charge $3 a gallon, and I can already, I can already sell gas for $3 a gallon in Ohio, why would I send it to New Jersey or New York? Now, you can say that it's an act of charity and that I should do that. But that's super erogatory. You can't impose on me a burden of charity. I might act on charity, but generally in a larger emergency, erogatory obligations are work better than super erogatory obligations. Saying that I have a duty of charity and I should give it away means I'll probably hide it or stockpile it. And that's why you get hoarding. So the, the big problem with anti-price gouging laws is hoarding. People 
store it up. Right now, there's a lot of people around the United States that have a garage full of toilet paper. And a big part of the reason was that you can, if you can find some, you'll buy it at a low price and hoard it. But that doesn't give producers the signal. Since we have anti-price gouging laws, that doesn't tell producers, we really need this. And then third, and finally, an increased price gives a signal to entrepreneurs to try to make substitutes. I'll try to find some other way of doing this. I'll, I'll work around the fact that there's scarcity. So to summarize, if there's scarcity, price, prices go up. That has three positive effects. Consumers take into account the needs of other people and use less. Producers try to make more, and entrepreneurs try to come up with substitutes or alternatives or workarounds. So those three things mean that it's probably not immoral, and that in fact, a concern for others would say, if you really care about the poor, Matt Zwolinski has a great video about this, if you're really concerned about the poor, you should want to allow price gouging because that means that there's a supply response. There will soon be more of the stuff. Paradoxically, in most market systems, if you want a low price, you have to allow a high price. If you want a low price, you have to allow a high price because that's a signal to bring this in. But let's suppose you're not persuaded and you think it's immoral. Fair enough. Should it be illegal? Well, no, it should not be illegal because the public policy consequences of this are that there's no other way to get large amounts of this stuff to the people who desperately need it so quickly. So there's, a, there's an old joke in North Carolina, we get a lot of hurricanes. So after a hurricane in coastal North Carolina, supposedly, there was a owner of a, a convenience store and a guy comes in, he's gonna buy some water. And he goes to the back and there at the back of the store, there's cases of bottled water. But the cases of bottled water are $40 a case. And the customer says, for heaven's sakes, $40 a case. The guy across the road, he's charging $7 a case. And the owner says, well, go buy it from him. And the customer says, well, he's out. He doesn't have any. And so the owner of the store says, okay, I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. As soon as I'm out, I'll charge $7. Well, the point is that the only reason that he had any water to sell was that he was charging $40. So from a public policy perspective, there's only two choices. You have some of the stuff at a high price or you have empty shelves. The consequentialist argument is that high prices are better than empty shelves. So the, the, regardless of what you think about morality, it's better for me to be able to pay $40 and get water than to have as much money as I can possibly have and not be able to get any water because it's all sold out. Switching gears a little bit, uh, as I understand your recent book, Is Capitalism Sustainable? It seems that you argue that capitalism, I think it's coupled with democracy. It's been, a, it's been a few weeks since I read this book, but when coupled with democracy has a tendency to lead to crony capitalism. I'm wondering if you could talk about that problem and then talk about maybe a solution to the problem. I can certainly do the first. I haven't solved the second. Democracy is incurable. So the, the, the gist of the argument, capitalism is based on the pursuit of honest profits. And by honest profits, I mean the, 
desire to make products that consumers want to buy voluntarily after having made contracts with the input suppliers all voluntarily. So I buy labor, I buy capital, I buy materials. All of those things are assembled into a product that I then sell to the consumers. So there's all those voluntary contracts, which means that every party to those voluntary contracts is made better off. The input suppliers are made better off. The uh, labor capital owners are made better off and the consumers are made better off. Now, and, and I still have something left over. That's what we call profit. The amount of revenue that's left over after I pay all of my bills that I am receiving voluntarily from consumers, that's profit. And there's an argument that profit is a measure of the reward that entrepreneurs get for creating value. And when you think about it, who gets most of the value from producing, say, an iPhone, an Apple iPhone? Well, the, the Apple company makes $100 or $200 profit on an iPhone, but there are plenty of people who would pay $2,000 for an iPhone and they can get it for $1,000. So consumers are making $1,000 every time an iPhone is sold. If you add up all of what economists call the consumer surplus, the difference between what I have to pay and the amount that I would pay, that's the benefit that's being created. So the profits that are going to Apple are a tiny fraction of the benefits to society of allowing these profits. Okay, that's the story. I became more and more concerned that opponents of capitalism on the left say, well, that's a fine story, but that's not actually the way that things work. And I became worried, remember that there was that scene in the fourth Star Wars, uh, Grand Moff Tarkin is, is told that there, there's a flaw. And he says, we've analyzed their attacks, sir, and we think that there's actually a danger. Yes, somehow we didn't notice that there's a giant hole that goes all the way from the surface to the central reactor. It, it took a computer analysis to figure out that it might be a bad thing to have an unarmored giant hole that goes directly to the central reactor. But we've, anyway, we've analyzed their attack and we think that there's a problem. Well, I basically had the same reaction to this criticism from the left that if you look at actual profits, some of them are produced according to the fairy tale that I told, all voluntary contract. But a disturbing number are produced in partnership with, at best, and sometimes active complicity with crony capitalism, where subsidies, favorable tax treatment, um, uh, regulation that prevents competition, all of those things come from government. And what's disturbing about this is that it's actually entirely within the logic of capitalism to pursue those things. Suppose that I'm a corporate CEO and I'm investing in new plant and equipment. I keep hiring engineers and salesmen. Well, at some point, I think, you know, we don't have any lobbyists. At some point, it's going to become more profitable for me to hire the first lobbyist than the last engineer. So it, it doesn't mean that I, I don't play it straight for a long time, but once I start to hire lobbyists and lawyers who negotiate contracts that are favorable to me, they're not really voluntary because I'm getting the state to impose constraints. Well, suppose I, so that's the, the, the corporate CEO has an incentive to do that. Suppose I refuse. Suppose I say, nope, that's immoral. Well, there's a competitive market for managers. 
And if this is a joint stock corporation, the stockholders are likely to say, let me get this straight. It is legal for you to pursue profits through politics. You are refusing to do it. There is this legal, but you say immoral activity that would put more money in my pocket. You have a fiduciary duty as the manager of this company. If you do not do that, you will be fired and will we'll hire someone who can. And there's plenty of people who will. When you take an ethics class in business school, it usually just says, here's how not to get caught. It doesn't say don't do that. It says, these guys got caught. Don't do that. Let's suppose, though, that even the stockholders would prefer not to do that. There still is the mergers and acquisitions market, all of which is part of the logic of capitalism. So I'm a corporate raider, and I notice that your stock is undervalued because you are refusing to participate in cronyism. You're not getting the subsidies. You're not getting the beneficial tax treatment that you easily could obtain if you would just hire some lobbyists. That means that your capital is underemployed. I can go to a bank and borrow money against the increment to the stock price that would result from me pursuing cronyism. I can buy the company, I make a tender offer, I buy the stock and I pay off the loan because the stock goes up 15%. The result is that if you use capitalist means, you do not achieve capitalist end. What you get is crony capitalism, because profit maximization results in, at some point, a resort to government action. Now, there is a possibility, and that is that our political leaders refuse to do this. That's unlikely. That, that's my no sound. It, it is unlikely that political leaders will refuse to do this. In a democracy, having large corporate interests support you is a big help to get reelected. And most of the time, voters are either unaware or indifferent to this kind of activity. So what concerns me is that it seems that capitalism has an inherent tendency towards cronyism. And I, for years, would mock my friends on the left. I'd say things like, look at Venezuela. Venezuela is a proof that socialism doesn't work. And they say, oh, well, that's not real socialism. I say, yeah, I understand that, but you have to understand that socialism is a recipe for totalitarianism. And so the, the initial sort of kumbaya idea that Jerry Cohen has about socialism is not sustainable. It's going to end up being an exercise of power. It's not a camping trip, it's the exercise of power. Well, okay, sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. If I'm right about socialism should be judged, based on what it becomes, not what its ideal form is, we should apply that same reasoning to capitalism. And if capitalism always becomes cronyist in a democracy, then we need, if we're, if we're gonna defend capitalism, we have to defend crony capitalism, and that's a lot harder to do. So there's something inherent about democracy and capitalism together that lead in that direction. So you may remember in 1944, Friedrich Hayek, published a book called The Road to Serfdom. And he didn't say that the price control is the same thing as communism. He said price controls tend to lead down a road to serfdom. There's a tendency, because if I have price controls, I have to impose more regulations to control for the distorting effect of those regulations. And then 
I have to have more regulations because of the distorting effects to control the distorting effects. And so it's not exactly a slippery slope. There's turnaround, but there is a tendency. And so I, I, the, the article that um, Mario Villarreal and I originally published that became this book, which was in uh, the Independent Review, was called The Road to Cronyism. And it was, it, we're, we're riffing on Hayek. There is a tendency. And that tendency is part of the logic of capitalism, just as totalitarianism is part of the logic of socialism. I wonder if someone might push back here uh, with the story you told and ask, why doesn't the story that you gave us, why doesn't that implicate democracy rather than capitalism? I mean, for a variety of reasons, a lot of political philosophers and political scientists, going all the way back to Plato, haven't exactly been big fans of democracy. Maybe that's the problem, Mike. Right. Let's suppose that it is. Let, let me grant that. Are you seriously arguing that we should get rid of democracy? Because it's hard to find an alternative form of government that, well, actually, I do know a form of non-democracy that I favor, and that I, I am world dictator. And I probably would be willing to accept you being world dictator. But even then, we're going to have secession problems. You know, maybe my son, we can have hereditary world dictatorship. But seriously, I, I, I don't know of an argument that, that would, is an alternative to democracy. Now, you could say we can have constitutional republic. And the constitutional republic has a set of restrictions that prevent the exercise of these sorts of, of activities. So we, we can't do these things because there are rules against except, uh, subsidies. There's, we have separation of church and state. Why don't we have separation of economy and state? That's certainly possible. The problem is that it is in the interests of corporations and it's in the interest of political elites to break through those barriers. And so what we've seen throughout the 20th century in the United States was the continual expansion of the Commerce Clause as a justification for more and more state action. The people who say, what if we just got rid of democracy? Why can't we be like Singapore? How, why do you think you won't be Venezuela? The, the, ha, having a philosopher king as the dictator is always the first step. That's the hardest part, is, as long as we can choose that person and then make sure that there's a, the succession is also merit. So I guess I, to, in, in Thomas Sowell terms, the reason that I'm not willing to give up democracy is that I have a constrained vision. My view of this is that what we can hope to accomplish is pretty limited. I, I might even concede that an ideal world where I could design the dictator would be better than democracy. But I recognize that even if I were able to choose that, my side would not always win. The argument for democracy and rule of law is that your side doesn't always win. What you have to do is limit how bad it is when you lose. And everyone's going to lose now and then. So we have to, we have, again, we're back to the moral question. We have to find an institutional arrangement that makes us concerned about the welfare of the losers. And I don't think there's an alternative to democracy. You're, you're absolutely right. If you can propose an alternative to democracy, because it is, after all, the blandishments of, of democracy that you can argue are seductive to these captains of industry that otherwise are pure. But when they hear the sirens of government power saying, hey, big boy, come over here, 
I'll give you subsidies. Then these poor children are seduced. But the, I would say that this is a dance of two. There are plenty of corporate CEOs that, that are willing participants, and the system selects for them. And there are plenty of government officials that are willing participants. So the, 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 the only hope, when you ask them about a solution early on, I think the only hope is better voters. What we need is voters that say, we're not going to tolerate this. And Russ Roberts, as you may recall, had a solution, which I think is interesting. And that is on the left, they often publish lists of corporate responsible, corp, responsible firms, firms that are, have exhibited corporate responsibility. So what we might do is look at companies that have refused to accept subsidies. And in fact, there was quite a bit of backlash recently. I don't remember the name of the company, but one pretty famous fast food restaurant returned, the, they, they, got the, they got money uh, because of coronavirus, they were supposed to pay their employees and they got several million dollars, but they returned it. There was so much, that's not right. They got tens of millions of dollars and they returned it because they said, well, that, that's not really right. This should go to small businesses. So the, the pressure that limits corporate cravenness and croniness might from, come from consumers and from voters. So I, I think that's the only hope. We're, we are stuck with democracy. In many ways, that's just as well. I think the arguments for democracy, well, Winston Churchill was right. It's terrible, and all the others are worse. Speaking as a, a professional philosopher, I think a, a philosopher king is a disaster of an idea. Yeah. Uh, I got to say, um, we would be still busy arguing about, you know, basic fundamentals of justice or some nonsense. Uh, you did mention um, voters as a potential solution here. And I remember I was listening to a talk you gave about this topic. And you mentioned voters. I think, I think it was a very tentative solution. But I remember thinking, like, jumping up my chair and, like, screaming, like, voters have poor incentives to be informed. What are you talking about, Munger? Like, how is this going to even work? Voters are terrible at this kind of stuff. They are rationally irrational, as Brian Kaplan says. What are your thoughts? Voters are the ones who ultimately pay the bills for having a bad system. And so the reason why I chose voters as the best element of the choice set is that they are the singleton element of the choice set. There's no other alternative. Anthony Dejase, who was, is a, was a French uh, Hungarian businessman who wrote a book called The State. He had a very interesting theory about constitutions. He thought constitutions were largely epiphenomenal. And so what he argued was that constitutional restrictions are unnecessary if people have the shared cultural commitment to those principles. And they're ineffective if people lack a shared cultural commitment to those principles. Because no government can stand up to the sort of concentrated will of the people to be corrupt. And so having constitutional restrictions, uh, they just say, thought he was an anarchist. Uh, so the, the one, it's not inconsistent that he would think uh, constitutions were epiphenomenal, but he was scornful of this sort of American chest thumping about its constitution. And when you think about it, his argument was interesting. I said that the Commerce Clause has been expanded as if the Constitution was what constrained us. Well, De Jose would say that throughout the 18th and 19th century, well, throughout the 19th century, 
there was largely a consensus among enough of the elites and voters in the states that they wanted to limit the power of the central government. Something changed following the Great Depression and the sense that people have about wanting the government to do things meant that the Constitution could not prevent these restrictions from being swept away. And so uh, the, I, I have become more skeptical myself. I'm, I'm a fan of James Buchanan. I'm a fan of constitutions. I think that, because notice the problem, if you say voters are dumb, who's gonna choose the good constitution? Because we're gonna redesign the constitution and voters are rationally irrational. And they're gonna say, you know, Venezuela, that sounds pretty good. We'll just have uh, free everything. We'll have free college tuition. So the yes, you end up having a, a constitution written by a new constitution written by Bernie Sanders. So the, if, if we can't rely on constitutions or voters, we probably do have a problem, that, which means that the title of the book was, Is Capitalism Sustainable? And I could have written a short book and said no. I wanted to turn to a little more optimistic note and focus on your um, less recent book, Tomorrow 3.0. I wondered if you could walk us through just the very basic idea. I take it to be that, that Uberizing the economy reduces transactions costs. You're able to hook up buyers and sellers much more readily, and this will have all sorts of positive um, consequences or results. Could you walk us through that a bit? Well, I would, I would quarrel with the last part of your characterization. It may or may not have positive results. Many of the results are negative. So the reason that the, the earlier book was called Tomorrow 3.0 is that my claim is we're on the verge of the third great economic revolution. The first being the Neolithic or the move to fixed agriculture, the second being the industrial. Those were both catastrophic. They were terrible. It was really bad to be poor for either the Neolithic or the industrial revolution. All of cultural institutions were ripped apart. Families were ripped apart. There was terrible poverty. And until there was an adjustment to the new institutions, uh, Karl Marx was right. His story about commodification was catastrophic. So we live in a rural village and we are able to basically exchange through a local barter economy enough food to survive. And in fact, survive pretty well. We have annual festivals and yeah, sometimes life is hard, but it's not so bad. We live in rural England and things are not so bad. Commodification means that now the products that are being grown have an opportunity cost because I can now sell them in the city for money. Once we establish a money economy, that means that you have to have a source of money income to participate. And so I have to go to the city and find a job in one of these dark satanic mills. And I live in a stacked up pestilential tenement building because we do not yet have the institutions that, so when Karl Marx looked at his window in 1848 in Berlin or London or Paris, he saw that those cities were on fire. There, there was a terrible social disruption. So the reason that he wrote the Communist Manifesto was he thought the revolution was imminent. Well, if you look around now, I think we're seeing some of the same things. Economic revolutions don't care what we think of them. And so the Industrial Revolution happened because of the economic logic of commodification and division of labor. The third great economic revolution, which I would call the platform economy now in my new book, 
Platforms are a means of reducing transactions costs so that you can get peer-to-peer -peer transactions. But that means that you have a lot more sharing. And by sharing, I don't mean you and I use the same thing. I mean, you use it now and I'll use it tomorrow. Or I'll use it this afternoon and you use it this morning. So if I have a car in a few minutes and you need a ride, I can. there's a modular commodification of that car using an app called Uber. But there's nothing that says that Uber has to deliver human butts. Uber can deliver all sorts of things. Amazon was a book company, but now Amazon is a platform. Platforms are entities that perform three functions, triangulation, transfer, and trust. Triangulation means that I announce that I have this good or service and I'm willing to share it. I announce a price. Transfer means that we, we, we have a contract and the, the good or service is actually delivered. And trust means that we can rely on each other's promises without having to spend a lot of time and resources on monitoring and enforcement. So if you have something that does all three of those things, it means that you can be like Amazon. Amazon just sits back and operates something called AWS, Amazon Web Services. Amazon Web Services is a context in which buying and selling takes place. Amazon doesn't own things and Amazon doesn't buy things. Amazon is just a place, a platform in which that takes place. So in my new book, I talk about the, one of the first most important modern platforms being the Sears catalog. So if in 1910, and I live in a rural town in the Midwest, let's say, my local hardware store may have 30 or 40 different items. But there's all sorts of stuff that's out in the world that I want to buy. It's just hard for me to get because I cannot perform triangulation, transfer, and trust. But the Sears catalog can. So the Sears catalog is basically a paper mall. It's a big bunch of stores, and I turn the pages, and I'm on a different store. I find the thing. I find the price. I didn't even know it existed, and now I have to have it. Sears can deliver it because they have uh, contracts with railroads. So like Amazon now, their delivery costs are lower than anyone else, and they have financing system where they can clear the transactions. Finally, if you don't like the product, you can give them a bad review. You have to write a letter, but you can give them a bad review, and you can get the product returned because Sears will accept it. So the, the risk, Sears is taking all the risks of selling bad products, which means that there's an explosion of commerce. Well, Amazon is the Sears catalog of 2010. The question is, what's going to be the Sears catalog of 2025? And my prediction is that it's Uber. Uber is a platform. Uber provides triangulation, and it doesn't have to deliver human butts. As I said, it can deliver puppies. Many cities have Uber, but for puppies. So if you want to rent a puppy for an afternoon, you can get an Uber driver to deliver it, and then you play with the puppy, and then the Uber driver will take the, the puppy back. You can get power tools, you can get meals. So there's, Uber is a delivery system, and I take out my phone, I scroll down to power tools, I scroll down to power drill, I rent it, I put two holes in the wall, I return an Uber, takes the drill back to the hardware store to the next rental, I no longer have to store power drills. I don't need a garage. I may not need a closet because I can rent clothing and shoes for special occasions. There's, um, it's interesting, men have always been able to rent tuxedos, but it's been difficult for women to rent uh, 
designer evening clothing because partly because the geometry of women is complicated and has to fit. Men just have a few measurements and nobody cares if it looks good, but geometrically women are complex. And so it, it needs to fit in a way that, that works. But if you have a, a, a camera with an app, you can actually get very good, accurate measurements. And so Rent the Runway is Netflix, but for clothes. So I, I get three items. For 150 a month, I can always have three items. I can have a gown, shoes, and a handbag. And I wear those once. And you know, if I'm rich I'm, and I have a really nice gown, I'm not going to wear it again. I paid $5,000 for it. But, oh, this old thing, I just have it just this once. And so I, I send it back. Somebody else wears it. It means that I can now afford to rent things that were far better quality than I could afford to own because you have this modular commodification of excess capacity. So that's what I would say is the key, is the commodification of excess capacity. What that means is that we can share temporally. We can have a serial sequence of ownership of these things. Now we have to solve the problem of trust. You know, that I'm not going to break it. I'm not going to stain it. If it's a power tool, I'm not going to use it wrong. It means that the nature of products is going to have to change in two ways. First, it's going to be more durable. But second, we're going to add telemetry components that are going to communicate the cause of damage. I'll be able, there's a timestamp. I'll be able, it's like a, a, the black box in an airliner. You know, you, you learn something about the cause of the crash. It's actually pretty easy to have that. And that means that I now have, I am careful not to break this. So if we can share this, I, I don't remember where you live, Jimmy, but the, do you have a lawnmower? I don't. Well, so the people that live in their own houses, they, they, they have a lawnmower and their neighbor has a lawnmower and their neighbor has a lawnmower. And you use your lawnmower for 40 minutes once every seven or eight days during the summer and the rest of the time it's stored. It seems like it should be pretty easy to have to share lawnmowers, but we can't solve the problem of triangulation, transfer, and trust. Who's going to own the lawnmower? Who is going to deliver the lawnmower to other people at a particular time? And wait, this is broken. Who broke this? We have a hard time telling. You can solve those three problems. You could have five people share a lawnmower that's better quality, that would be dramatically cheaper and would take up a lot less storage space. So if you're in a city, my, my son went to grad school, got a PhD at NYU in uh, the south part of Manhattan. Often I would be in an Uber or a taxi in lower Manhattan and, you know, not moving. You look in both directions, there's three lanes of traffic but two of them are empty cars. We call that parking like it's a thing. Why is parking a thing? That's stupid. Why are we paying some of the, basically it's free. Some of the most expensive real estate in the world is being taken up by empty cars. When we're highly constrained on having enough space to be able to get our bikes and cars around on this island, not having parking, having only be able to rent the car and have somebody else use it. The problem with ownership is you pay for everything twice. First, you pay for the price of the thing, and then you pay to store the thing. I think people 50 years from now are going to look back and say, not only were they selfish, they were stupid. These were all potential streams of revenue. You have this thing that's just sitting there. So I, I go to 
the I, I before coronavirus, I used to fly every week. I would always go somewhere for a visit, and I would often take my car to the airport and park it and pay to park it. Two hundred yards away, there's a company called Hertz, and that company is renting out cars to people who are visiting. And an airport is a perfect transshipment place for this. Well, it would be easy, and in fact, several companies have done this, just arrange to match up the people who are going to the airport and would have to pay to park with people who are coming to the airport and would have to pay to rent, and you can drive my car instead of it being parked. Now, we have to solve the three problems, triangulation, transfer, and trust, but that's not that difficult to solve. That, that app says, you're going to be here for three days. This person is going to be gone for three days. We have to solve the problem of trust. But notice it doesn't take much of a revenue stream because I'm going to have to pay $25 a day to park that car. If you pay me $25 to rent my car, I'm making $50 a day. The $25 that I get from you and the $25 that I'm, that I'm saving by not paying to store the damn thing. So we're just making more efficient use of existing resources. Commodification of excess capacity means our footprint on the universe is smaller. We're making better and more efficient use of the stuff we already have. We have plenty of stuff. It's just in the wrong place. And the transactions cost revolution is moving us towards making more efficient use of the stuff we already have. And say, from what you've told me, uh, Mike, it sounds like the platform economy, as you describe it, is all upsides, more efficient, uh, get access to better quality goods at a lower price. Seems like it could potentially raise real wages. I think you've sold me. What's the downside? You're absolutely right. It is excellent for all tenured college professors. So old people like me who have a job where I can't be fired, even if they find out the truth. There, there, there's, it is an excellent situation, I admit. However, notice that, let's think about my drill example. Right now there's 110 million power drills in the United States. If you rank them from most to least used and then look at the median, the 55th millionth most used power drill, it's been estimated that the lifetime, now that's lifetime use of that drill is 40 minutes. Because two or three minutes of using a drill is a pretty long time. Most of the time, you use the drill. I mean, if you're putting together something from Ikea and you take it apart, you put it back together, you curse, you come back the next day, maybe you use it for a longer time. But most drills are not used very much. We have them around just to say, if I need two holes in this wall right now, I can get them the cheapest way. Because I don't want to drill. What I want is two holes in this wall right now. But the cheapest way to get that is to buy a drill and then store it. If we instead had an efficient system of sharing, particularly in urban areas. Now, this is much more true in urban areas because you need a density of transactions that will support a sharing market. We could probably get away with six or seven million power drills. Not, not over two million are being used at any one point in time. So, I, I get the delivery, I use the drill, I put it in the smart pod in front of my house. The smart pod contacts an autonomous Uber driver. The um, Uber platform solves the traveling salesman problem that minimizes the number of nodes that it has to go to to make these deliveries. The autonomous car picks up from the smart pod and takes it to the next rental. That drill gets rented 
10 times in a given day. It only costs $2 each time to rent it, but that, that, that drill is generating $200 of, re $20 of revenue a day. It pays for itself easily in two weeks. And it has a six month expected life. So the person that is providing this drill um, as a rental, and maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a contractor. Contractor doesn't use the tools all the time. So I use the tools during the day, and then at night I put it in the smart pod and it's available for rental. So the the if I many people are gonna still own tools, but they won't use them all the time. Well, we'll only need six or seven power drills total, but there will be a change in the durability. Instead of these cheap little power drills like the one I have, you'll have a really nice commercial quality drill that's designed to be used for 2,000 hours that'll hold up to abuse. That means that instead of 110 million power drills, we need 7 million power drills, which means that within a few years, all the people who used to make power drills will not have a job. It means, renting means that we no longer will make things. And you can already see this happening. And you can also see it on a different margin. If you go into uh, McDonald's, now, I, I'm confident you don't go into McDonald's. You're a healthy fellow. But if you go into McDonald's, what you usually do is you go up and you look at the board and you read some words from the board. You read it aloud. You say, uh, Big Mac, French fries, milkshake, and fried apple pie. And the person behind the counter looks for the corresponding words on little keys on their cash register. Just turn the cash register around because it's the same words. Now we call that a kiosk, and actually now it's a it's electronic. So the it's a instead of a keyboard, the you go into McDonald's. A lot of times there's nobody on the front line there. You just press the on the glass screen on one of these kiosks. Your order is placed, and you can pay. All of the people who work in service jobs are going to lose those positions. Service jobs are being destroyed by software, just as manufacturing jobs have been wiped out by robotics and automation. Software is to service jobs as robotics and automation are to manufacturing jobs. They're all being wiped out by increases in productivity. Now it's true that the people that still work in manufacturing, most of them make pretty high salaries because they're very productive. But far, far fewer people work in manufacturing than worked in manufacturing just a few years ago. And actually the place you see this the most is China. China lost the most manufacturing jobs of any country in the world. China used to have these big buildings full of women with sewing machines. And now, instead of a thousand women with sewing machines, you've got 12 people working on machines that are making textiles in an automated factory. So the reason that China has been so successful in expanding its manufacturing capacity is the increase in productivity that comes about as a result of reducing the number of jobs. And we're going to see the same thing with software. So software eats the world. And the, the problem is that there's fewer and fewer jobs. So two things are gonna happen. Economists have a way of summarizing those two things, which is called real wages. One thing that's gonna happen is that prices are going to plummet. Instead of owning, I'll be able to rent. And the price of having access to something in a very convenient way is gonna fall. The other thing is wages. And since many jobs are going to disappear, wages are going to fall. The question is, what's gonna to happen to real wages? Well, if you have a good job, if you know computer programming, if you can participate in this economy, 
your wages may fall, but not by as much as prices are going to fall. If prices fall by more than your wages, that's an increase in real wage because your wages have more purchasing power. So there are some people for whom this will, in fact, be great. But it doesn't matter how, fall, how far prices fall if you don't have a job. So the dark side of this <coughs> is just the economic consequences, but my real concern is the political consequences. Because this means that demagogues will be able to use the political process to try to blame someone. And the United States right now, what we blame now for the last four years, immigrants. They've taken your jobs, not this irresistible economic force called the increase in the platform economy. No, it's immigrants. We have to, they're, 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 it, it helps in a demagogic story to have a battle of good versus evil. Instead of, you know, these are impersonal economic forces, what we should do is try to cushion the blow. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about a distinction that you made um, that I really like and that I think is a really important one. So you've distinguished between what you call directional and destinationist libertarianism. I like this. I like the distinction because I think it's really important in political debates uh, not to confuse um, revisionary change with incremental change. And oftentimes people do what Barack Obama advises not to do, which is to make the perfect the enemy of the good. So I wonder if you think a distinction between a directional politics and a destinationist politics, do you think that's a, a, a distinction that carries over to other orientations like progressivism and conservatism? And do you think it's better to be a directionist than a destinationist? I ran for governor of the state of North Carolina in 2008. I didn't do very well. I got 3%. But it was interesting. I was in four televised debates with the real candidates, and it, it, was, it was a great experience. I, I'm glad I, didn't, I did it. I wouldn't want to do it again, but I'm glad that I did it. I noticed that some of the time when I was trying to talk to potential voters, the people that I had the most trouble with were libertarians. And remember, I was running as a Libertarian Party candidate. You think that I would be able to depend on the seven or eight Libertarians? Um, absolutely not. And the reason was that my policies, the, the, my, the planks of my platform were directional. What I was trying to do is say, let's start from where we are and let's try to choose policy that make us incrementally better. So, for example, I was for school choice including vouchers. And I was willing to go so far as to say means-tested vouchers. Wealthy people have choices now, but means-tested vouchers would allow those who have the least school choice to be able to put more competitive pressure on the worst schools, or if nothing else, when they go to these schools, it'll increase the funding for those schools. So that seemed to me like a, a kind of compromise policy. And I was told that no, the only acceptable libertarian educational policy is the immediate elimination of all taxes. That seemed like a non sequitur. Well, if we didn't have any taxes, then people could pay for their children to go to school anyway. Well, actually, a lot of people don't have jobs. And so no taxes is not going to help them very much. Well, they'll get jobs because there'll be no taxes. That's all possible, but there's no one is. If, if I were to have run on a platform of the immediate zeroing out of all taxes, it is unlikely I would have gotten many votes. As it was because I was running on school choice, I actually did get, I, I, I got 130,000 votes, so 3%. Now, 
I think that progressives have a terrible problem with this. Um, and in, in 1984, well, in, in 1972, in, in 1984, you see the Democratic candidates that were running against the Republicans. And the result was they lost a whole bunch. They're, 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 I worry that it's, I was particularly worried it was going to happen again in 2020 because it, it looks to me, um, I'm a political science professor, but I, I haven't looked that much at poll data. But it looks to me like Donald Trump should be fairly easy to beat with a moderately centrist Midwestern Democrat, the sort of per, like Bill Clinton, so someone that says we've got to get the economy running again and without very extreme positions. What the Democrats seemed for a while to want to do instead with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders was to choose the person that was, since Donald Trump was so far on the right, let's choose the person that's as far on the left as we can go minus epsilon. So we'll just, it'll be perfect. We'll go as far as we possibly can. So the someone in the middle, someone that's incremental, that's let's just go in the better direction is no good. What we have to do is always get as close as we can to the ultimate destination, which in the case of Bernie Sanders, at least, is explicitly democratic socialism. Well, that's actually something that many voters are not in favor of. So I, the, the distinction that I have tried to make is between marginal, effective, realistic improvement in politics versus the sort of sense of purity that many libertarians, but they're not the only ones, but that many libertarians would rather be pure than successful. And I find that frustrating. I think there's actually some room for us to be successful, particularly given how dysfunctional the two state-sponsored parties are. There's a lot of, there are some parallels between this discussion between destinationist and directional uh, politics on the one hand, and some of the intuitions people have about price gouging on the other. I'm reminded of a, a discussion I had with a libertarian friend of mine who's about as libertarian as one can be. Maybe he's closer to anarcho-capitalist, I don't know. But I was talking about this distinction, and he just couldn't see the value of a directional approach. I think in his mind, to be a directionalist is to do something wrong. It's to take money that's been stolen, right? It's to just engage in immorality. And there's just no wiggle room when it comes to that. And it's sort of similar to people's reactions, I think, to price gouging, in that you maybe the consequences are fine, like in the consequentialist calculus, things work out. But there's just something wrong with it, dang it. And it's really interesting that those things, the psychology of that seems to be very similar. Right. And I, I think that I probably should take that argument more seriously than I do, because I have not been very, been very persuasive that, that my view about that is correct. So um, it seems like it is tempting for people to divide the world into moral and immoral. And then for some reason, it doesn't matter what the ranking of things in the immoral category is. It's immoral. So my argument was, yes, I understand that school vouchers are being funded by taxation, which you believe, anarchist, is theft. It's still better to have school vouchers than it is to have a monopoly financed and a monopoly produced state education system. And people disagree for just the reason that you say, no, no, the state is still involved. There's still coercion. That doesn't matter. So the disagreement actually, to me, specifically comes down to, 
I think there are better and worse things in the category of policies that you reject. And I know for a fact we're going to choose one of the policies that you reject because there's only seven of us. You mentioned uh, when you were on the Dave Rubin show that you think the mark of an intellectual is being able to identify a compelling argument on the other side and then explain why you disagree with it. So I'm wondering if you could do that for us. Can you give us an argument that you find compelling but disagree with and explain why? The one that we started with. Um, for a long time, I did what many economists do about price gouging, which was, notice, if, if you ever take an economics class, you start out with the assumption that people are two things. They're self-interested and rational. Well, why is it then that so many people favor price gouging laws? And economists will say, oh, well, they're irrational. <laughs> Wait, that can't be right. So the, the, we, we're going to assume people are rational unless they disagree with economists. And then they're irrational. That's a pretty ad hoc way of arguing. So in fact, um, the example that I first came up with that took me years to understand was about the people standing in line in Raleigh, North Carolina to get ice. The police came and arrested the sellers of ice because they were charging $11 for ice that only paid $1.50 for. And the people standing in line did something the people standing in line clapped when the ice sellers were arrested. The police took them to the police impound lot, turned off the truck, and all the ice melted. So the people who were waiting in line didn't get to buy the ice, and they clapped. The reason is that there's two considerations. One is the material benefits that I expect to realize as a result of buying this ice, even at a high price. The other is the moral intuition that I have. This is just morally wrong. I don't want to live in the sort of world where people take advantage of the desperation of others. Now, economists are subjectivists. There's nothing irrational about that second belief. Economists also draw indifference curves. And that means that we talk about trade-offs. There's nothing inherently irrational about saying, I care more about the moral features of these transactions than I do the material benefits, particularly if the ice sellers were correct about judging the price that brings it right up to the point where it's almost the most that you would pay. Suppose you would pay $11.50 for a bag of ice. I'm selling it for $11. Yeah, you'll stand in line to get it, but you're not that excited about it. Mostly, you're really mad that I am such a bastard that I am charging you for this thing that you need. So the police come and they smite this immoral person. And I feel pretty good about that. So I think that. There is, the arguments that I used to make saying laws against price gouging are irrational are just mistaken. There's a perfectly coherent and rational position. Now it's one that I disagree with, but I have, I've had to reevaluate my view about anti-price gouging laws. It's perfectly sensible to say that the set of things that come with a world where we use price and not people's charitable sense, people's communitarian sense, to share things in an emergency is just wrong. You, you are absolutely allowed to have that, and I have to concede it's a pretty good argument. It just happens to be one with which I disagree. So finally, you're working on a, a new book. Can you talk to us a little bit about the book? The, the Platforms book is a kind of redoing, because tomorrow 3.0, I was interested in the commodification of excess capacity. The Platforms book, I made a realization that um, as an economist, I have a hammer and I look around and everything looks like a nail, but platforms are actually anything that solve 
the three problems of triangulation, transfer, and trust. And a lot of those would be more of the sort that Alexis de Tocqueville would recognize than the ones that Adam Smith would recognize. And so I'm going full Jerry Cohen here. There are ways that communism can work with platform. And Wikipedia is a fascinating example of that. Wikipedia is a community that solves the problems of triangulation, transfer, and trust. So they have interpretive communities where they can identify each other, they're experts, and then people are editors of particular pages. They have a kind of ownership, but it's a shared ownership. I can't sell it. It's not a market ownership. It's more like a communitarian um, responsibility. And then people can add changes, but it's easy for me to achieve trust because the only way I'm going to be allowed to make changes to most Wikipedia pages is if I have developed a reputation where other people trust me. And notice that Wikipedia has done this very clever thing. So I could go to, do, do you have a Wikipedia page? I don't. I have a Wikipedia page, which I, I just hated. It was, I, it was about me running for governor, which was, it was very old, and so I complained about it. And then little Wikipedia fairies came along and updated it, and now it, it, it's much more sensible. But suppose someone who hated me went in and spent three or four hours changing all of the details to horrible things about, I was a John Burt Society. Um, whoever's in charge of that page wakes up the next morning and they look and they say, oh, it's been changed. They press one button and they revert all of the changes. So Wikipedia has an incredibly low cost way of allowing monitoring and enforcement of the elites that are in charge. On the other hand, it does welcome people in to provide work that they can get recognized for. So Wikipedia is a brilliant platform. Uh, tool libraries, the sharing of libraries. So instead of having a power drill that I rent, maybe I have a, a complicated electric miter saw, you have a, a router, um, so you want to do some woodworking. There's software that it's open source software. You just fill out a questionnaire, it'll generate a website for you with the information that you, you want for your tool library. And 20 of you who all have tools can share the tools. So a Tuesday night, you want to do some woodworking, you can have access to these complicated set of tools better than anything you could afford. And you use them in your garage for that one night, but you don't have to store them because they're returned to the owners. But it, it's, it is pure sharing in the sense that it is cooperation because we trust each other. Now, what allows us to trust each other is not the sort of Jerry Cohen style personal knowledge, which doesn't scale. He was just wrong about that. Large communities, you can't work. You need something that scales. But his basic intuition about community, I think, is correct. Because if we have some way of reducing the transactions cost of trusting each other, and platforms can do that, then it's we actually are closer to something like the camping trip or a tool library. So platforms are something much broader, and it's much more like Tocquevillian cooperative associations than it is rental communities where everything depends on price and supply and demand. My guest has been Professor Michael Munger. Thanks, Mike, for coming on the show. It was great. Thank you very much.